If there's one thing our polarised politicians can agree on, it's that our prison system is broken. Overcrowded, understaffed, drug-ridden, violent. Incarceration is riddled with issues which are complex and inextricably interwoven. The last 10 years has seen a 20% cut to the prison's budget, while at the same time every prison's minister promises to tackle the problems. Indeed, one former prison minister, Rory Stewart, said people often emerge more dangerous than when they entered the prison system, something we've seen recently with two terrorist attacks in London. This air is going to be blocked, bruv. Locked down. So, if there is a consensus that the system is failing on an epic scale, how do we turn it around? Is there any possibility of creating a prison network fit for the 21st century? I don't want to see prisons just being factories to turn uh, bad people worse. Uh, we need to be making sure that uh, they're educated and that there isn't a culture of gangsterism and drugs and criminality in the prison. Welcome back to Polarised, the podcast from the RSA that's all about the big divides in our politics and our culture and how to fix them. I'm Ian Leslie. And I'm Matthew Taylor. And this week we're asking, how do we solve the problem of our failing prisons? So we should be able to sort this out in the next 40 minutes, right? It can't can't be that complicated. And and to help us get our prisons back on the straight and narrow, we're joined by two fantastic guests, both of them former prisoners, in fact. Uh, uh, First of all, we have Chris Atkins, who is a one-time TV documentary maker who was given a five-year sentence for tax fraud. And uh, he's uh, written a book about his time in prison. It's called A Bit of a Stretch. Uh, Yeah, it's about his time in Wandsworth Prison. So he's got first-hand experience, as does Jason Waugh, former prisoner who is now a lecturer in criminology and criminal justice at De Montfort University in Leicester. But first, it's the point in our conversation where Ian and I lay our cards on the table. We call this full disclosure. So what's our starting point? Well, I I, I don't have any cards to play because I'm really so miserably ill-informed about this that I'm, I'm going to be asking you to lay your cards on, on the table. Well, look, I really want to get into the conversation with Chris uh, and Jason. I've just read Chris's book, which is absolutely fantastic. I just described it to him as a, co- a cross between porridge and apocalypse now. So, you know, it, it, I, what a quote. What I a quote. strongly recommend it. It's a brilliant book. I, I've been almost unable to put it down. Uh, so I don't want to, I don't want to cut into to Chris and Jason's time. But so I'll say two things. First is just a bit of context about me, which is that I grew up uh, in the house of one of the country's leading criminologists, because my father was one of the country's of leading course. criminologists, and yeah. he just wrote—he wrote, he wrote a book. Taylor, Laurie Taylor, Laurie Taylor. He wrote a book about a high security prison, Durham high security prison, and one of the weird consequences of that was who we would get Christmas cards from. So we would get Christmas cards from Ian Brady, uh, one of the Crays, and of course John McVicker turned out to be a great friend of Laurie's. And when John McVicker was finally released from prison, you know him and Laurie became great muckers. I used to hang out quite a lot with John McVicker, so I've got a kind of, you know, I've got a bit yes, of. Steve, a bit You've got a criminal background. (laughs) But in terms of my position, I just want to actually return to one of the most interesting lectures we've ever had at the RSA. We have, you know, a couple of weeks. I've seen hundreds, I guess. But there was a guy called Shad Maruna, who's a criminologist. Where's he based now, Shad Maruna? Uh, He's back in Belfast now. He's back in Belfast, yeah. So he did this fantastic talk for us in which he talked about kind of recidivism, really. But he, what he said was this, look, 
if you look through all the evidence about what works best, incarceration or rehabilitation, he said there's been more work done on this than almost any research topic in history, and the answer is nobody really knows. The evidence is not convincing on either side. However, what you need to know is this. First of all, the actual trend does not reflect the evidence. It reflects money. When there's more money available... Uh, we tend to put more people in prison because it's more expensive. And when we're short of money, people tend to look at alternatives to prison because they're, dressed up, they're trying to save money. That's the first thing. But he said the more, more interesting thing he said was this. He said, in the end, what matters is not the reoffending rate because you will never win that argument because the evidence is not clear-cut. What matters is what is it that the criminal justice system is for? And he said these two things. He said, if what you care about is forgiveness more than punishment. You'll favour a uh, focus on rehabilitation and uh, sentences outside prisons. And if what you care about is the families of prisoners, you will also favour non-custodial sentences. So what matters is not this argument we all have about reoffending. What matters is what you care about. And if you care about families and you care about forgiveness then you'll put your money into alternatives to prison. If you don't care about those things, you'll put money into prison. OK, but what if you care about keeping criminals out of the way of, of well, no, well, he says the that, rest of society? I mean, it, it, what if well, you care about order? Right. You know? Well, he says the evidence won't help you either way because actually his point is that the evidence on reoffending is is simply not clear-cut. You won't. So you, you've got to decide, when you design your system, you've got to decide what matters to you. And if what you want to demonstrate is that you're a punisher, a society that focuses on punishment and you don't care about families, then you may as well bang people up. Yeah, but that's a slightly slanted kind of way to put it, isn't it? If you're, if you're a person who doesn't care about families, well, no, then because, yes. Well, no, well can, let's get into the conversation because one of the points that Chris... I have views. One, have of views. The points, <laughs> one of the points that Chris makes in his book, one of the most powerful things in the book, and we're going to talk all about the power powerful ideas in your book but I do want to tell people it's a very very funny book as well so so we're not going to get into the kind of humor of it I don't suppose but that's one of the reasons you should, you should buy it and read it but one of the things that you talk about a lot in your book Chris is the effect on your family mm. and your worst times are all about your son mm -hmm. and you talk about you know the 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 evidence of the terrible impact yeah. that being in prison has on families and actually you say in the book and I think you're right that isn't something we discuss very much no really, at all. So if we did focus on families much more in our policy, we'd say, what about the innocent members of the families of prisoners? It would probably lead to a different uh, emphasis. Who, who also go on to re-offend, I might add. So the children yeah. of prisoners are vastly more likely to, to re-offend. Yeah. And suffer mental health problems. And suffer mental health problems, etc., etc. So that's the, I think that's, that's the knock-on, that you create these future victims because the kids of prisoners go on to be prisoners themselves with more victims. I mean, let's, so let's get into the conversation. But I think the point I want to make that Shad Marunan was making is that we probably spend 80% of our time when we're debating whether or not to have community sentences or prison sentences or whatever, focusing on this reoffending issue. It won't be resolved. Let's focus on maybe other issues, like, for example, what kind of society do you want to be and do we care about families? Well, let's start with Chris. And actually, can we just start with talking about your, your son? So how old was your son when you... He, he was three. It was almost four. So my... The first two weeks inside, he had his fourth birthday. And can you just summarise for us why you went to prison? Uh, yeah, as, as, as you said, I, I was, I, st I still am a documentary filmmaker. And about 10, no, about 12 years ago, there was a film I was trying to make called Star Suckers. And the idea was it was a film that was going to lift the lid on the media. And I thought it was a great idea with one massive flaw, which is no one in the media wanted to fund it. So rather than just knocking that idea on the head and go make something else, I someone arrogantly used a, a, a tax scheme that were all the fashion at the time. 
where celebrities would avoid tax by putting money into films and we would get money to make our film and they would pay less tax. But some of these schemes got a bit kind of carried away with themselves and sort of crossed the line into sort of outright criminality. And we facilitated one of those schemes. So HMRC got very upset and put about a dozen people away and I was one of them. Wow. Um, and how long did you spend? Well, it, was a, it, it was a five-year sentence, which is two and a half years inside, or behind the door, as they say. Uh, only nine months in what I call a proper prison, which is Wandsworth. And then after that, the remaining 21 months were in open prison, which doesn't really count in terms of, <laughs> you know, guards and banging and all, all, all the stuff you associate with prison is really about closed prisons. Open prisons are a different kind of category, really. What was the biggest surprise or the biggest shock between your, you know, your, your expectation? You must have thought this is not going to be great. But, <laughs> but what was the reality like versus your expectation? I, th- I think it, 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 it was something that you, you were just talking about just, just earlier. It was this idea that people, I think you have from popular culture. Because I'd only watched television and films about prisons and I thought, well, therefore I must know everything because I've seen it on TV. And you were talking about the craze and McVicar and stuff. And I think because of that and a lot of the books and popular culture on prisons and is the kind of fair cop gov, you know, I've done my birds, it's po- Fletch and Porridge thing. You think that that's how it is. And it, you go and it is actually mentally ill drug addicts. That's the, the huge majority of people inside have some form of mental illness or are therefore the drugs or because of both. And there's a lot of crossover between the two. So I think that's what struck me when I first went onto an actual, actual wing was just everyone here is clinically insane, as indeed most of them were. So I think that was the massive culture shock for me is that it wasn't a place where people were being punished or rehabilitated. It was a place where mentally ill people were being warehoused. Uh, while they self-harmed and in many cases killed themselves. And one of the things that was fascinating about the book, Chris, is the way in which the kind of hierarchy of wider society replicates itself mm. Mm. within, you know, within the prison. Absolutely. You know, that there's a kind of class, class hierarchy. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. Kind of elements of ethnicity in the hierarchy. White-collar crimes, you know, white-collar criminals tend to end up kind of... In the best spots. In the best spots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, it, and it wasn't like it was in The Porridge or even in... I remember reading Jonathan Aitken's book. And again, that was massively out of date because with him it was, you know, you arm robbers and then there was a structure like that. And it wasn't at all. It was the people who, who had been to public school and ha- lived in Hampstead, like me, who sharp-elbowed their way into the best cells and the best jobs, much as people like me sharp-elbowed their way into the best schools or, yeah. you know, and the best that, houses that, and you, jobs. you had a better relationship with the staff? Completely, yeah. yeah. Because a lot of the people inside fundamentally could not engage with authority. That was the big difference between me and most of the other people inside, was that most of them saw, and whether the authority was a teacher or a social worker or a care worker or a politician or the police or whatever, that's a big blob of authority. And their main way of engaging with it is no comment. I am very used to dealing with authority because I'm a documentary filmmaker. I deal with authority the entire time. So... I could just walk up to an officer and have a rational conversation with him and try and bend him to my will, shall we say. And there's some, uh, there were other prisoners. There's a guy, Scott, in my book who I, I kind of compare at one point to uh, Obi-Wan in Star Wars where he goes, these aren't the droids you're looking for. <laughs> and he would just, stuff would happen, gates would open, food would appear. He'd been there two years, so he got quite good at it. And so the, the middle class people who, you know, as in life, documentary filmmaking is about blagging stuff, trying to get what you want out of people. And, and, and I just found those, those quite transferable skills. But 90% of prisoners just couldn't talk to an officer without swearing at him or hitting him. So therefore, I was going to get on better and have a better deal, I guess. So, so Jason, do you recognise this kind of uh, account that in a way that you, you might have thought the people who survive in prisons, we, we are led to believe are the ones who are the kind of most violent and the gangsters and the ones who are the kind of underworld connections, but actually... It's the people who can and, kind and of play the system and cope with authority. Quickly summarise again your your story. Uh, uh, to quickly summarise my story, um, 
Well, I was convicted of homicide when I was so 17, 18. So I was incarcerated in 1992. I got out in 2004. I went through uh, 14 different prisons in that time. I went from, you know, young offenders into the high security to low security, then back into the high security. Do you Wandsworth at all? Or? Uh, no, oh. uh, no. I managed to... Ah, uh, I did a, a brief stopover there, uh, <laughs> but literally a, a brief stopover, um, as I did brief stopovers in a number of different places. Um, what was on, you, on were you journey. ghosted at ever? Or, or oh, yeah, a few times. Um, yeah, you were what? Yeah. What did you say? Ghosted. ghosted. What does that mean? Um, ghosting is essentially where you are forcibly removed from one establishment and moved to another uh, on the grounds of security concerns. You're often not told where you're going. I was unlocked at 7 o'clock in the morning by a team of six officers. Uh, no chance to pack up my stuff. They packed that up. Uh, and I was literally transported from that prison. I was out of the prison by eight o'clock, still in my boxer shorts. Uh, and was all I was told was that I was being moved up north. And they do it to mess with people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of reasons why ghosting happens. As I said, you know, often it's related to security concerns, but often you'll never be told what those reasons are. So for me, I was a young offender. I was moved from one establishment to another one, sort of three four hours away, literally that morning. And did it happen? Sorry, I could talk about this all day. And no, no, did, it's fine, does it go it's from? Because with some people, it goes from prison to prison. It's not just once. Mm. It's like a chain, isn't it? And you, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can get, you can, again, you can right? get uh, you can end up on a roundabout, which is what they call it, you know what I mean? The merry-go-round, where you just go round nick after nick after nick. For me, when I was on remand, there was a, a, a disturbance. <laughs> uh, there was a disturbance at Felton when I was on remand. So what they did is they just ghosted the whole wing. You know, you're talking sort of 80 prisoners. Bang! Just ghosted out to other establishments. And on that, I ended up in Rochester for a night. I ended up in Brixton for a night. I ended up in Luton Police Station for nearly a week. Uh, and then was taken back to Feltham and then was moved from one wing on Feltham to another wing in Feltham. So, I, could, I mean, because I've just read Chris's book, one of the things that, I mean, there's so many things I took away from it. One is the incredible importance of who it is you're in a cell with. So you yeah. presumably, when you're going from prison to prison, yeah. every time you go through the door, you're we're doing it with trepidation. Because are you going to be in a, in a room with someone who's sane and reasonable? Are you going to be in a room with someone who's a complete lunatic? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was in a slightly different circumstance. So other than my first few months in Feltham, I was in a single cell for the whole rest of my were you, were you high risk? The notions of risk back then were uh, <laughs> slightly, uh, slightly more yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, flexible. But because I was a lifer, so oh, uh, see, partly, yeah. you know, they tend not to put lifers in with other people if they can help it. But also back then, the prison, you know, when I first went to prison, the prison population was, what, 43,000? Yeah, yeah. Um, it wasn't as round as it is now. No, no. And it's you know, now, I mean, it doubled in the yeah, time that I was right. inside. So, so lot. So, Wandsworth was supposed to be all single cells, and now it's two people in a cell. Yeah, Belmarsh supposed to be two, and there's three in a cell. So they've just they haven't got more places. They've just packed more people in. And after, and then since 2012, they've actually closed. What is it? 14 prisons. So you know, actually, they've kept the same number of prisoners. But in a smaller estate, and you know, and this is part of the kind of age of austerity in terms of the prison service, where actually, you know, the benchmarking came out of this idea, which is when they shrunk the staff numbers. Uh, but this is also where the idea of you know removing more money out of the establishment in order to try and achieve the same ends, but for much less cost. Um, so I was running a project. I used to work for a third sector organisation, and I was w running a project in one establishment. And over the thirty months that I was working in that establishment, they lost nearly three million pounds out of their budget and of course that comes from frontline staff I want to pick up on a couple more themes for, for, from the book and also get your, your perspective on them Jason so one of the things about the book is the kind of and I think this is an element actually of polarisation and people's kind of bitterness is the gap between what 
government ministers say is happening and what is actually happening when you experience the system. And I think that a lot of people have this, you know, in hospitals and job centres yeah, yeah, and whatever. Yeah. You know, they see ministers, they hear government assertions, and then the reality... And that happened over and over again. There's this enormous but, but the disconnect gap. is bigger in prison. I mean, it's real Ministry of Truth, black is white, white is black stuff. And I fortunately could just see the funny side about how ludicrous it was and sort of write so it all down. So give us an example of what... Well, what it was just hearing well, your purple, you the purple. I think the purple vest, the, the purple helmet thing. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> immediately the, renamed the purple. I mean, I, I, I would see ministers standing up in the House of Parliament and say, "In Wandsworth, we have this fantastic scheme. There's 80 purple-shirted advisers. It's the Purple Army. It's a new radical scheme. It's working really well." And I was one of, the, I think, the four. Purple Army people in Wandsworth. And we'd never done any peer advising because we weren't qualified. We have to have this ridiculous six-month training course, which none of us ever completed. So people were just talking absolute nonsense in Parliament about how great it all was, in, specifically in Wandsworth. And the reality was the exact opposite. When I first arrived, there was a, an induction booklet that said... You know, you're laughing, but that's the thing. It's a complete joke because in the induction booklet, it says you'll get, have your weekly laundry. You can go to the library once a week. You can go to the chapel. You get an hour's exercise a day and everyone has a job and you'll go on an education course and boom, boom, boom. And you read that going, oh, this, is, this sounds great. You know, it's firm but fair. It sounds like there's going to be a pr- well-run prison here and everything. And none of it happened. Absolutely none of it happened. But you're still given this booklet because they have to give you the booklet. But you say, when can I get out? And no, no, you can't. You know, everyone's locked up because of lack of staff. Does that ring a bell with you? Oh, yeah. I mean, very definitely. I mean, the, the, the one of the problems is is that you have the existence of the prison as it exists in the imaginary. Uh, and then you have the prison that it, as it exists in the bureaucracy. And then you have the prison that it exists as it actually manifests. And there's often quite a lot of disjunct between those three states. Um, and one of the clearest examples of this is when you see... And uh, to go back to a point that you made earlier is, you know, all our perceptions of the prison is mediated through other forms. So it is either people in government making proclamations about what happens in the prison or it is films, documentaries or even books that are often slightly voyeuristic in the manner in which Mm -hmm. they talk about the prison and prisoners. And you know what I mean? Because fundamentally we are talking about people we are talking about our fellow citizens but often they are kind of reified to these rather abstracted kind of positions but one of the clearest examples of how the prison exists as an imaginary is when they start talking about and you see this a lot you know prisoners get three hot meals a day no they don't (laughs) they have not people yeah people (laughs) have not had hot three hot meals in prisons since the early 90s you know that just doesn't happen you get a breakfast pack you know, and you will have experienced this. You get yeah, a breakfast yeah, yeah. pack at five o'clock in the evening, <laughs> and that is to last. That's for your breakfast the next Follow day. The morning, yeah, yeah. You'll get a cold lunch, and then maybe a hot meal in the evening. But it's not in the evening. But it's at half uh, it's four. At four. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so there's four. nothing in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, the annual food budget is it's yeah. something like one pound twenty-five or one pound thirty per prisoner. My favourite one. Per day is the wow. um, is the health per week. Sorry. If if people listening to this now, you go to the MOJ. It's on the website. It says prisoners get the same standard of healthcare as anyone does on the outside, and that is so farcically removed from reality. I mean, picking up on that point, if you take mental health, for instance, as you know in your book, you know, and there is a very particular history of why we have so many people in prisons with mental health. I mean, if you look at, you know, during the 1980s when they started closing down the regional secure units uh, in, you know, in this country, the the care in the community. So what you ended up with was the reduction of what, a loss of 60,000 beds or something for mental uh, and forensic, uh, for mental health patients and the loss of something like uh, 15 or 20,000 beds for forensic mental health patients. 
those people ended up in the streets, they ended up homeless, they ended up then going back in and out, in and out, and in and out of prison. But if you talk about, you know, the we know that mental health services in the community are poor. We know this. But if you look at prisons, I interviewed, so for my, my doctoral research was talking to psychologists who work in prisons. And one of the things that I, I got talking to them about was about the mental health services. I remember talking to a psychologist who worked in a prison that had over a thousand prisoners in it. And she was saying that nearly a third of the prisoners there need acute mental health treatment. And what they had was six members of staff coming in from the community delivering 20 hours a week. And that was it. So I, I, because we, I mean, and this is such a, it is an incredibly interesting topic. We've got limited time. So what I want us to do is to, is to focus the remaining time we've got on two issues. The first is what is going on in relation to kind of public opinion? So I'll offer you kind of three possible explanations. So the first is the public don't know. They don't know how shit it is, right? And if they did know, they would want to do something about it. Now, the problem with that is that, you know, look at the prison's inspector. Every few months they come out and it's just, I mean, it's unbelievable. It you couldn't be clearer the language couldn't be about clear, how right? terrible okay. it is. Okay, yeah. but let's, so thesis one is they don't know. And if they could all, you know, read Jason's blogs or read your book or whatever they'd kind of see and they'd want to change it. The second is they don't care. They they, they just, they, yeah, they don't. I think that's closer to they, it. They, yeah. they, they, they just don't, you know, who, who cares? And kind of then related to that, actually deep down they think good. Oh, no, yeah. no, they think good. Yeah, Welcome. so they'd read your book and they'd say, well, look, all these people... So, Deserve it. Well, I'll give you a... They'd say, terrible, this self-harm, but at least they're not harming other us. people. If the choice is yeah. self-harm or othering us, uh, or yeah. harming us... So what, what, what do you... You know, I'll start with you, Jason. What, what the, the kind of public attitudes to prisons, the, is it denial or is it... I think, there, I think there's an interplay between all three of those, all three of those things. And I think there, there's a concept called agnotology, which is about the creation and maintenance of ignorance. Uh, and what we actually get here is because, you know, going back to this idea that, you know, what we see about the prison is mediated. But actually what the public do not understand and the ignorance that they have there's no one we're not saying that the public are stupid here but what it is is that the truth of what happens in prisons is often hidden from them and it's hidden quite deliberately but what that then does is then that perpetuates into a situation where well why should we care because it's not something that is in their face on a day-to-day reality. It's not like a hospital. You know, or it's, a yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? And it's not something that, even though, you know, we have, what, it's 10 million people, according to the Ministry of Justice, have criminal records. So we're talking, what, one in six, one in seven people in this country have at some point had a criminal record. But yet we don't see the kind of implications of this because, you know, there's... Behind closed doors. Yeah. Yeah. It happens away from our site. So because it happens away from our site, we don't know what's going on. And because we don't know, people don't care. And because they don't know and they don't care, it then feeds into the, well, good, that's what prison is for. But actually, that's not what we want prisons to be for. What do you you think? think? Yeah, I I mean, I agree with most of that. I think British have a peculiar mindset to prisons, which I I didn't really engage with before I went inside. And now I've been through the system and I've looked at a lot of the Daily Mail comments and so I've sort of gone into the belly of the beast. And and, and I think the British have a very peculiar approach to criminal justice and to prisons and and, and to crime. But the Americans are the same as us, aren't they? Yeah, but I think we're very different from the rest of Europe. And I think this is why, and I would take issue with some of the stuff you said earlier, you know, this is why I think our re-offending rates are much higher than most of Europe. And we also imprison far more people per head of population than most of Europe as well. And, and it is this sort of slightly vindictive, sadistic, lock them up good. It's exactly what you said, that even when they see how rat infested it is and, and self-harm, it's like, well, they should deserve to be punished. And I think that is something just about wider society in Britain. I don't exactly 
absolutely know why that is, but I know that it exists. And I know that it is problematic because when you have that mindset, there's this very viciously punitive approach to uh, criminal justice. And what it means is that you don't have any focus on rehabilitation. I think you can have rehabilitation and punishment at the same time, which is put people in prison, but do something very productive with them while they're there, which is what they do in Norway and in other certain European countries where they do lock people up. When they're there, they retrain, they re-educate and they walk out less likely to commit crimes. And I think in Britain, we have the opposite, which is it's all about punishment. We've cut the budget back so much, there is no rehabilitation inside. Honestly, people said to me, how do you rehabilitate in British prisons? And I say, they just smoke spice and watch cash in the attic. That is literally all that is there for them. And, and it means that they walk out, they commit more crimes, in some cases almost immediately, in some cases. I know because I'd see them coming back a week later to the same prison. And they commit more crimes and they create more victims. So while it's the public saying, what about the victims? What about the victims? We must punish and punish and punish. That going overboard, which I think it does at the moment, means you then just create even more victims because the reoffending rate is, you know, it's 50% or thereabouts. Well, so let's connect that. So, th- so, so that, that's why I think the public, they don't care, but they should because they're the ones that are suffering because your, your, your house is going to get burgled in a year by someone who's just walked out of prison because prison is failing. So, so let, let's connect back to the second question you want to ask. And actually, I want to get Ian's perspectives first on this, which is to just to confirm your hypothesis, Jason, I, I do a lot of work around deliberative democracy, things like citizens' assemblies, citizens' juries and things like that, and what happens to, to uh, comes out of that. And one of the consistent findings from those processes where a group of citizens are randomly selected, they come in and they look at an issue over a weekend or two weekends. One of the consistent findings is that when it comes to criminal justice, they go in as male readers and they come out as guardian readers. That is to say, when they spend some time looking at the issues and understanding the issues, this kind of if authoritarian instinct falls away, falls away yes, and a yes. more sophisticated, more humane kind of view starts to come through. More and this is, and more yeah, and this is not yeah. because they've been bombarded with liberal messages. They've heard all sides of the debate, but that is still the journey they've gone on. So the second question is, what do we do about this? I've actually not read the bit of your book that's about recommendations, so this will be fresh to me. But I, I want to start with you in, in the sense of when you take an issue like this where the public seems to have a kind of fixed view and it's hard to break through it and and not many people are incentivized to break through it apart from the usual suspects what can you do to chip to change the weather what is it that changes that changes the weather well i think the the political case must be something to do with finding i hate to use the phrase a third way but (laughs) at the moment you've got two kind of poles of this debate and you always have as far as i can see you've got the kind of lock them up string them up the the worse the better kind of daily mail uh, traditional daily mail attitude and you've got the left wing kind of like let's show some compassion and and be much nicer you know the more kind of let's be humane and what you need to do is kind of find some merger of the two where you say as chris was saying it's good for all of us if people come out of prison in a better shape than they go into prison mm. right so uh, it's just good for you for your neighborhood and it's, you know you're less likely to, to 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 suffer from crime and it's more humane right and i think actually to do him credit i think michael gove was edging towards that Definitely. position Definitely. right um before brexit happened and he had to leave the the, <laughs> the the post but he got it and he was starting to get some of the tory press on side as well so i don't think it's impossible but i can see you um, edging to get yeah, it yeah <laughs> uh, i i have issues Right. So I think part of the problem was that Michael Gove was very good at selling a very particular message about, you know, education, you know, we want to reform prison in terms of education. But actually, if you look at what he was going on in the background, if you actually look what he was doing, was none of that. He was very good at selling a message.
message. And of course, education is quite a safe message. Who doesn't want people to have education? Who doesn't want you know people to be able to read and write? Who doesn't want people to be able to do basic mathematics? And essentially, that's what education in prison has become over the last 15 years, has been reduced to, to, to the basics. Um, to talk about the kind of political issues, I think one of the things that we need to do is that often the message about prisons becomes about, yes, there are 40,000 plus incidences of self-harm. Yes, there are these many people taking their own lives in prison. Yes, there are these many people. But these are cold facts. There's no emotion to these things. And actually, if you want to sell a political position, if you want to sell a political ideal, it has to be. And we've seen this with Brexit. Story, yeah. yeah, we've seen this with Brexit and we've seen this with, you know, with the politics, not just here, but in the US. You need to have a narrative. You need to have the story and you need to have investment to the emotion within those stories. This is why often when you, you know, when you do talk to the members of the public and you show them a specific case and you show them that often the trauma that's involved in that case, both for the victim and for the person that was, um, who has committed, you know, if they're, if they're an addict, if they're homeless, if they're, you know, and what, all of a sudden they begin to attach to the quite humane narrative in that. And that then can change their friends. But communicating that to the wider public becomes very, very difficult. It's difficult. And, but I, and I think it's possible. But I, I think we don't have to kind of make a judgment on Michael, Michael Gove's time as, as Justice Secretary. What we can say is he did at least show the beginnings of a political pathway to, towards a kind of, you know, how do you get the, the right wing press and that kind of right wing attitude to think about things in a slightly more nuanced form? Because if you can merge it, the, uh, the humanity that you're talking about, which I agree, this has to be done with storytelling and motion with an appeal to self-interest, right? <clears throat> Taking back control of some kind, you know, then you've got potentially kind of powerful case. But, but Chris, you're, I mean, the thing about your book is there's this kind of element of it. Yes, you committed a crime. One of the things you're very clear about in the book is that you did, you did wrong and you mm. want to hold your hand up. And you say, actually, one of the challenges is a lot of prisons find it very hard to do that. And that's hard for them to move on yeah, because yeah, they yeah. won't do that. But there, there's an element of your story, which is uh, you're an everyman. I mean, up to a middle class reader like me, I guess you know it's like, well, that could be me, and, you know. And there's a kind of dispatches from the front line. Yeah, and that's yeah. kind of part of the yeah. story because you know we might not like it, but as long as we think well, prisoners aren't people like us, you know, yeah, then they're subhuman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're subhuman. Yeah, yeah, then yeah. we can say, just no matter where they are, they're going yeah. to turn it into they're you know, other. right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's that's part of the power. So, do you think do you? I mean, do you agree with 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 what Jason? And then somehow we have to find a way of humanising this. Yeah, to, to I mean, break I mean, again, I do in the book a bit of a stretch. I do try and humanise it, and I do do it with humour because I found prison remarkably entertaining, albeit in a very very dark, darkly entertaining way. But I think on the solutions point of view, and again, it's going back to what you're saying that people don't know quite what's going on inside. You know, people can get unlocked for showers. People weren't having loo roll. You know, food sometimes wasn't delivered, and and all sorts of things like that. But there was this remarkable amount of newfangled, and this is, comes to what you're saying about aping the American system, rehabilitation courses, cognitive behaviour courses. Huge number of these are in British prisons, and we spend a huge amount of money on them. And there's very, very little evidence that most of them work. And so there are mindfulness courses in, uh, in Wandsworth Prison. I talked about this in the book. There was a course called Tunnelling. Okay, so loads of people signed up for this because they thought because <laughs> they thought they were going to learn how to dig tunnels. I shit you not. And then they went and they were going to learn how to control their, their 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 breathing. And I thought, how farcical is it that you just got the basics of the prison are just crumbling around us? But then there's these mindfulness courses going. It on. makes for a nice press release. It, well, it does make for a nice press release. And the thing is, I went out and I did some research afterwards, and there was a report done that showed that actually mindfulness. They did a study. 
increases reoffending. That's what the evidence shows, because it shows that people disassociate themselves. So I, I think you said, oh, everyone likes education. Well, they don't, because education budgets have been cut to the bone. But there is tons of money being spent on these really wacky cognitive behaviour schemes. And the evidence is, is either that they're ineffective or in some cases does more harm so than that good. So kind of, that was a theme. I'm interested in your view on this before we wrap up. There's a, there's a very poignant moment in the book, Chris, you talk about going into a room and, and it's the day when all the voluntary organisations come in with their courses. <laughs> yeah, right? we had and a fair. We had and a it's fair. like a kind of, yeah, it sounds like a kind of milk fair in a university. Yeah, They're exactly. all sitting there so surreal. offering their wares. You can have and, a shower, but you could have these courses. And all these courses. Yeah. And at the same time, people are in prison for 23 hours. And so what that made you feel is, actually on reform, stop talking about all this blather and just talk about the very basic the human basic rights. Stuff. If you could just say, look, yeah. Yeah. don't we all agree there's a basic minimum? Yeah that every prisoner should get, or whatever they've done, and shouldn't we just make sure every Start prisoner gets there, this? And then build on it as what well. Do you think, people are self-harming and I mean, trying I, to kill themselves at the same time. I think this is true. I mean, but, you know, things go round and round and round. You know, <laughs> in the 1970s, you know, when your father was doing his book, you know, the idea that nothing works, you know, and that humane confinement should be all we can really hope for became a theme. Then we've gone through the treatment industry, and there is a distinct problem with the treatment industry. But I think there's a more significant problem and this is related to actually what we mean by the term rehabilitation because often we all have a clear you know we all have a kind of public idea of what rehabilitation is and that is about you know enabling an individual to be able to change but that's not what rehabilitation means in prison rehabilitation in prison is a mechanism for enforcing compliance you know, this is why you get mindfulness and things like this occurring in prison, because it's not about taking the individual and improving their life and improving their ability or their ableness to be able to desist in the future. It's about enforcing or producing compliance in the here and now. A prison is interested in having prisoners that are not going to go and stand on the roof. They're not going to fight other prisoners who are not going to attack their staff. So many of the kind of disciplinary activities that are occurring in a prison are about producing that compliance on a day-to-day -day basis. And often what gets sold as rehabilitation is actually about producing compliance in the establishment and is not attached to the behaviours that the might outside. occur yeah. outside. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a really powerful point. I could talk for hours and hours about this, but thank you both for that. Uh, so, Chris, your book... A bit of a uh, stretch. A bit of a stretch is available in all good bookshops. I strongly recommend it. And Jason, if people want to read more about your work, where would they? What would the best place? Oh, be? well, there's all sorts of. Uh, Give us a couple know, of links. To... Uh, they, well, you can look at sensorycriminology.com, uh, which is a blog post. But I've also, if you want to know about prisons, look at the Prison Service Journal. That's absolutely free and available and open source. Brilliant. Well, thank you both. Before we go, we have what we call uh, the provocation, and I think we are going to be slightly provoked, Ian. You're going to call the result of the next American presidential election. Yeah, I am. And, you know, before I do this, <laughs> I should say that my, um, well, I was going to say my, my predictions, my political predictions are worthless, but that's not actually true. They're valuable as a kind of counter predictor. So, so what I say is very likely to be the opposite of what happens, right? So that, Given that I know what you're going to say. according to my, my track record. Um, however, I've got to tell you what I'm feeling at the moment as I appear into my crystal ball. Um, I really felt for the, for the, first time last week that Trump is going to win in November. I kind of understood that possibility intellectually up until that point. Most first term presidents get real. Right, let's forget it's Trump for a minute and just look at the fundamentals, as, as they say in political science. Most first time presidents get, get re-elected. And certainly, you know, if the economy is strong, they're very likely to get re-elected and the economy is going very strongly. Right. But then last week, 
a uh, couple of things happened at once. One one was uh, the Democrats uh, and Iowa. The primary just then didn't into a mess. They didn't know what the results were. We Since then, we've had New Hampshire as well. There's still no clear front runner. None of them actually seem capable of actually winning the, the nomination, let alone a general election. It just seems like a, a bit of a mess. And at the same time, we saw Trump's approval rating go up to the highest it's ever been um, last week. And those two things kind of happening at once. And the impeachment uh, thing just looks like a complete waste uh, of effort, doesn't it? Well, uh, yeah, it all depends. So from, yeah. a, from a political point of view, for the first time, I thought he's he's going to do it. I can't see one of these guys beating him. And am I right in saying that you think that part of that is to do with the pathologies of the left and to an extent, and this also is endorsed by the Lord Ashcroft's research, the kind of wokeism of the left is proving to be a kind of ongoing problem for it in terms of getting out of staring at its own navel and communicating with people who don't live in the woke universe. This is always a problem for political parties, right? The candidates always have to kind of play to, to their members and their members are often some you know somewhat disconnected from or not representative of, of the voters as, as a whole. Um, that's meant to be less true in the case of American primaries because the you know the party membership is so huge numbers of people c- can vote. But the, the party to some extent is being dragged further to the left than it's ever been by its kind of online activist community community and so they're all kind of having to move that way that at a time when you're facing you know as i say fundamentals where you've got a first term president with a strong economy it's going to make it very very hard to to win whoever wins the nomination do you, do you see replications between what's happening with bernie sanders and the momentum corbyn Factor, yeah, it, I mean, I, I do. I, I, you know, I don't think Bernie Sanders is, is a, a sensible choice. He's going to scare a lot of people who might otherwise uh, at least stay home because they don't like Trump. Uh, he's not liked that much, even even amongst many Republicans, particularly Republican women. But if you say, oh, here's this radical socialist, he's going to take away your health care, whatever it is, then you're going to see the vote behind Trump really solidifying. The the thing I want to add on this is Bernie Sanders is in a different class from Jeremy Corbyn as a, as a politician. Much stronger. Uh, much more competent, uh, intellectually able, and you know. I, I, so I, I don't think the analogy is. is but there's. Is, a, but I think is, the thing, the analogy for me is is that the left has got a culture problem now, which the right used to have. So if you go back to kind of the Blair era, the problem was that the kind of culture of the right, the kind of you know racist, old-fashioned, male-dominated, standing around in saloon bars, you know, that kind of went out of people did not want to be no. like that in the 90s definitely not and no. the Tories this is you know when Theresa May talked about the nasty party the Tories were stuck with a kind of culture which had kind of served them through the kind of post-war and it didn't, people didn't want anything more to do with it and they had to try and get out of it I think the left has got the same problem now, which is the left has got an internal culture where when left-wing people are talking to each other, the kinds of things they care about, the kinds of things they argue about, the kinds of things they hit slash out at each other about, leave most people cold. Anyway, you've made your prediction, Trump victory, and we will hold you to that over the next uh, over, the, over the next few months. That's it for this episode of Polarised. We'll be back again in two weeks' time. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do spread the word. And if you can, do leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. It would be much appreciated. Polarised was presented by me, Matthew Taylor. And me, Ian Leslie. The producer was Craig Templeton-Smith, and we were brought to you by the RSA. RSA.